Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 16. And we're going to read from verse 13 to 27. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say you are John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense unto me, for you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of man. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is it profited if a man shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we approach this passage of Scripture, this extremely important passage and sayings of Jesus, Lord, we pray that you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit this morning, that you'd give us wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of you. Help us to see what it is that you're saying here. Help us to understand the issues of the gospel and not to be deceived. Lord, help us to see that our souls are at stake and how we hear will determine where we spend eternity. Lord, help us to see how important this is and may we have ears to hear from you this morning, realizing that you speak through your word, you speak through your son to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week we looked at the first portion of this passage, and this morning we're going to focus more on the second, but I think we'll, we'll have to look, in order to understand the second, we'll have to sort of look again at the first portion. Now this passage, you could say, is very climactic in the book of Matthew. It is roughly in the middle of Matthew's gospel, and it's definitely a turning point in Matthew's gospel, because up till this point, Jesus has not at all taught explicitly about his own death. There's been allusions to it, certainly, but uh, before this, 
No one would have really understood from the teachings of Jesus that Jesus would have died. And so you see Peter's shock when Jesus finally says, I must go to Jerusalem and be killed. Jesus now begins to teach his disciples about what is to happen to him in Jerusalem. The three years of Jesus' ministry are now coming to a close. Most of the three years of his ministry, he was in Galilee, in, uh, in kind of an unpopular part of Israel, ministering to crowds. And he'd go to the feasts in Jerusalem, as, as good Jews would do. But now we're coming to the end of that three years. And he wants to take his disciples aside and tell them about the real nature of his mission. What it means for him to be the Christ. Because at this point, his disciples do believe he is the Christ. But he wants to teach them what this means. And we see that it was a very hard lesson for Peter to learn, right? You know, it's a hard lesson to learn what it means to be the Christ. It's a fairly easy lesson to learn that Jesus is the Messiah, right? How many of you believe Jesus is the Messiah? And you could argue it pretty convincingly, right? There's a lot of evidences that Jesus is the Messiah. You can point to the Old Testament. You can point to the prophets and everything they said that the Messiah would do. You can point to the history of Jesus, to his death and his resurrection, which are clearly evidenced in history. And you can believe that he's the Christ. Many people in this world believe in Jesus, that he was a prophet. Many people believe that he is the Christ. But it's a completely different thing to understand what it means to be the Christ. And I would say very, very few people truly understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Look at his own disciples who traveled with him for three years. And at the end of those three years, Jesus finally says, this is what it's all about. And he gets rebuked for it by his own disciple, by his head disciple. You think it's easy to to understand? You think it's easy to be a Christian? It is easy to be a Christian, right? In one sense. In another sense, it's very difficult to be a Christian. Because being a Christian is more than just believing that Jesus is the Christ. It's more than just believing the historical fact that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. What do those things mean? The disciples told Jesus that people believed he was a good teacher. People believed he was a prophet. Many people today believe those same things. Peter thought he had scored some points with Jesus when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't just think you're Elijah or John the Baptist or some prophet. I know you're the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, certainly that's significant. I'm not saying it's insignificant to believe he's the Christ. And certainly Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ was amazing in the light of the first century when very few people even believed that he was the Christ. The leadership of Israel didn't even believe that he was the Messiah. Most people didn't believe. And Jesus hadn't even risen from the dead. And yet Peter knew and discerned this is the Christ. And for that reason, Jesus commends him. It's a lot easier for us to believe he's the Messiah today by the fact that many people believe it. It's kind of orthodox to believe in Jesus the Christ, right? And we also have the history of his resurrection. Peter didn't have those things. And yet we learn in this passage that as significant as Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ was, it was totally insufficient. He did not understand what the Messiah is all about. 
Because when Jesus tells him, okay, I am the Christ, right? You understand that, Peter. Okay, let me tell you what must happen. Not just what is going to happen, what must. In other parts of the Gospels, because after this point, we're going to see Jesus over and over and over again telling his disciples what's going to happen. He says, it, it is supposed to happen. It behooves Christ. It's written. The prophets say this. And when Jesus tells Peter who he is and what he's going to do, he gets rebuked. You might think the audacity of Peter. And yet Peter, in all sincerity, in love for Jesus, right, rebuked him. Clearly he did not savor the things that were of God. He didn't understand the things that were of God, but the things that be of men. Let's register this this morning. A person can believe in Jesus as the Christ and not savor or understand the things of God. True? You might be sitting here this morning as a believer that Jesus is the Messiah and not have a clue about the things of God. And some people take this story the opposite. They think that this story might be teaching something like this. According to this story, you don't need to know about the cross. You don't need to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that means. As long as you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you'll be commended. Just like Peter was. They point to this story and they say, look, Peter, who clearly didn't understand the cross, said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, blessed are you. Right? And so people can interpret this to mean that it's enough to just believe that he is the Christ without understanding. And brothers and sisters, I want to suggest that is the opposite of what this passage is all about. This passage is showing us it's not enough. This passage is showing us you need to know about the death of Jesus. Otherwise, your confession, as significant as it is, is insufficient. Brothers and sisters, there is no doctrine or understanding more important than the atoning death of Christ. Do you believe that? More important. And there's no error more serious than this. There is no error more serious than not knowing about the death of Jesus and what that means. You can know everything else. You can have every other orthodox doctrine. You can believe there's one God. You can believe he's manifested in three persons. You can believe Jesus is God in the flesh. You can believe Jesus is the Christ. You can believe Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. And if you don't understand his death, that's the most serious error of all. Because this error draws forth the most serious of rebukes from Jesus. Right? Now the disciples said a lot of stupid things, right? But none of them got a rebuke like this. It's because we didn't take bread. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> right? Don't let the children touch Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. Lord, let me sit on your right, let, let me sit on your right hand when you go into your glory. Get behind me, Satan. None of those received such a strong rebuke from Jesus. Jesus might have said, Are you so dull? <laughs> but he didn't call him Satan. And in a lot of those instances, the disciples were being selfish. Let me sit on your right hand and let my brother sit on your left. In this case, Peter doesn't seem to be being selfish here, right? 
He's actually selflessly, in his mind, sincerely seeking the good of Jesus. Have you noticed with the apostles after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven, what the apostles saw as the most serious error? You know that when we read the New Testament letters, we find lots of errors in the church, right? Lots of problems in the church, lots of incorrect doctrines that the apostles are dealing with. All are important to be dealt with. But no error receives such scathing rebukes by the apostles than error about the death of Jesus, right? Not just that people don't believe that he died or that uh, they're, they're rebuking those who believe in the death and re- resurrection of Jesus who don't understand it, who don't understand the meaning of it. Think about the most radically vehement book in the New Testament. you know what it is? Most letters in the New Testament are written with a calm tone. There's one that's written with an angry, vehement, aggressive tone. Do you know what it is? Galatians. Galatians. Usually when Paul opens his letters, he says, I thank God for you, I pray for you. When he opens Galatians, he says, I marvel that you're so soon removed. He ends the letter by saying, look at how large letters I write <laughs> with my own hand. Usually Paul dictated. I think he wrote Galatians with his own hand. Big letters. You got to know something. This is a big deal. And what was the problem in Galatia? It wasn't that they didn't believe that Jesus died and rose again. At that point in history, the Christians, uh, those who professed to be Christians, certainly believed that. That was a historical fact. What was their problem? They didn't understand it. They were introducing a false understanding of the cross. And Paul says the most shocking thing in Galatians chapter 5. He says, you can believe that Jesus is the Christ. You can believe that Jesus died on the cross. You can believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You can believe all those things and they're true things and they're good things. But if you do not understand the grace of God, and if you do not understand that salvation is a free gift because of the cross, that because Jesus died on the cross, a sinner is saved by grace by putting their trust in that, in that death of Christ. And if you seek to add something else, it shows you don't understand the cross, and Jesus will profit you nothing. Isn't that a shocking saying? Christ shall profit you nothing. Christ, the Messiah, the one that you believe in, will profit you nothing. No profit, no benefit from the one that you believe in if you misunderstand his atoning death. Brothers and sisters, Jesus rebukes Peter as Satan because here Jesus sees the most serious error. Jesus sees Satan in his most dangerous form. And what form is that? It's the form that is apparently on Christ's side. It's the form that apparently seeks his good but does not understand his true mission. That's the most dangerous form of Satan. right? When you think of Satan, do you think of some red forked tongue pitchfork-wielding, I-want-you-to-sin kind of guy. (laughs) And if I can just get you to sin, I'll win. 
Where do you get that from the Bible? The Bible says that if you're a believer in Christ, if you sin, no one can lay any charges against you, right? If you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ rises. So why do we think that the devil thinks, if I can just get them to sin, I'll win? According to the Bible, if a Christian sins, he's forgiven. <laughs> so Satan doesn't win if you sin as a Christian. What is Satan's most dangerous form? What does he want to do? How does he want to deceive you? And believe me, he wants to deceive you, not just the man out there. And it's by putting into your mind or presenting you with a different Jesus or different thoughts of Jesus that don't understand the mission and the death of Christ. Oh, what I'm saying is pro-Jesus. What I'm saying is pro-Christ. Look, I'm, I'm telling you I believe in Christ. I believe he died and rose again. I get that. And, and I'm for his good. I'm all for promoting Jesus. Would that the whole world believed in Jesus. But this is what Jesus is all about. Not the way that Jesus and the apostles understood. Remember the temptation of Jesus? Before his ministry even began, the devil came to Jesus in temptation. And did you know all three of those temptations were apparently for Jesus' good? We need to dispel this idea that the devil just... He has, he has no good desires for Jesus, right? What does he say? You're hungry. Eat. Jump off the temple so you know that God's with you. I will give you all the nations of the world. I will give it to you and all the glory of them. Wait, I thought, Satan, you just hate Jesus and don't want Jesus around. Satan absolutely loves a crossless Jesus, Right? I would be happy, Satan says, to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world for every person in the world to believe and worship Jesus if they didn't understand his death. I would be happy if everyone in the world were like Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. No, Lord. And that's why Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. In you, Peter, I see Satan in his most dangerous form. It's interesting that Peter, when he says, uh, It shall not be in the Greek, it's literally, May God be gracious unto you. I'm like, No, God forbid. God wouldn't let this happen. God is good. This is not God. So Peter is literally saying, This is not God. You dying is not God. Why would God do that to you? Why would God take someone like you and allow him to die? You're the Messiah. You're not supposed to die. You're supposed to win. That's not what religion's about, Jesus. Religion is about you just winning. You just being here and teaching everybody and winning. May God not allow this cruel thing to happen to you. Is God cruel? Is God sick? Does he forget the righteous? It was Peter's mindset. Sincere, but wrong. And of the devil. Peter did not understand that the way to be right with God can only come through the sinless Christ 
dying on the cross, bearing our sins in his body on the tree. Do you guys see this and believe this? The only way for you to be right with God is not by God sending his son into the world to teach you about what goodness is all about. So what many people believe about Jesus. He was a good teacher. Even, even if they believe he was the son of God, he came to teach us about how to be good people. And all we got to do is just follow his commandments. Jesus must die if you will live. You want to live? He must die. Why? Because you are a sinner who deserves hell. Do you believe that? See, Paul said if if righteousness could come by the law, meaning if you could be a good person in God's sight by just doing your thing, then Jesus died for nothing. Jesus died for nothing if you can be a good person by keeping his rules. You ask any non-Christian in this world, are you a bad person? No. Are you a good person? Yes. Are they a good person? Yes. Are you going to go to hell? No. Are, are they going to go to hell? No. No one's going to hell, except like the really, really bad people. But most people in the world are really good. Most people in the world are not worthy of hell. Well, then there's essentially saying, most people in the world don't need Jesus. Blessed are those who are really bad. <laughs> right? <laughs> Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, sin is the real problem. And the only way sin can be solved, that problem can be solved, is through the cross. And far from the death of Christ and the proclamation that we are sinners who deserve hell, far from that being got, uh, uh, an indication that God is cruel, that is the one indication that God is love. Because God tells us you are not righteous. You are not good. You deserve hell. You're going to hell. And I sent my son to die for you because that's the only way you can live. That is the revelation of the love of God. So no, God isn't cruel when he says to you, you're going to hell. I, sometimes I tell people that and they look at me as if I had two heads and they say, why would you even tell me that? You must not like me, and you must think God doesn't like me. You're disgusting. And I'm saying, no, it's the opposite. I'm telling you that because that's the truth, and God loves you, and he doesn't want you to go to hell. And he has provided a solution, but you're not going to know the solution unless you understand that God's, God's, he must have blood. <laughs> he must have blood. If you're going to be saved, it's going to be messy because you're a sinner. And you can see here what Christ thinks of good intentions and human piety and sincerity because there is no doubt, brothers and sisters, that Peter is sincere. He has good intentions when he says this to Jesus. He does it in good, good worship, good piety. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. God is not impressed with your sincerity. God is not impressed with your good intentions. God speaks truth to us. And we must listen and believe. Our good intentions will receive his most harsh rebuke. 
Brothers and sisters, our wisdom and our faith must be founded upon God's word and not our well-intentioned thoughts, no matter how sincere they may be. Don't be deceived by thinking, well, all those nice people out there that don't believe in Jesus, they're really sincere and nice and God's going to give them a break. Well, I guess Jesus died for nothing. Sin is the problem. There is none righteous, no, not one. They are all corrupt. There is none that fears God. There is no one good but God alone. They are worthy of death. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. And God loves this sinful world and sent his son to die for our sins, to take the penalty that we deserve, that you deserve, so that you don't have to take it. Just trust in him and not in yourself. Just put your faith in his death for you and his love for you and his grace for you and not in your own supposed goodness. Oh, I hope I'm good enough. You're not, God says. That's why I sent Christ. That's why he must die. Because sin is a reality. Wrath is a reality. Therefore, the cross must be a reality if eternal life is to be a reality. So no, we cannot use this story, brothers and sisters, to support the theory that Peter is okay because he believes that Jesus is the Christ and that anyone who simply believes that Jesus is the Christ is okay, even if they don't understand the cross. We live in a totally different time than Peter did. Peter's time was different. Jesus had not explicitly taught about his death until now. So when Jesus first taught it, Peter was shocked. Peter didn't understand at that moment, but he would understand later because he would become a preacher of the gospel. And never later would Peter say, it's okay if you don't believe the gospel, just believe he's the Christ. Just do like I did before I understood. No. And today we have no excuse because Jesus now has died and rose from the dead. Jesus has taught about his death. The apostles have preached about the death of Christ and explained it to us. We cannot confide in Peter's confession which he gave before he understood. Just because Peter is behind at this point doesn't mean that everything else that Jesus says is also behind in understanding, behind in doctrine. Not so. As we'll see, verse 18 and 19, these statements are prophetic. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me. Because Jesus now says what he's going to do. Peter at this point doesn't understand. But Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And as we talked about last week, it's evident that Christ would not build this church on fickle Peter, who even in this story and many others shows himself to be not a solid rock in and of himself. As we talked about this morning, who's our rock, not us? Peter had to learn that lesson. As much resolve as he had, he was not a rock. Peter was only a stone, like all of us are stones, insofar as he's built on the rock of Jesus Christ. If he's not built on the rock of Jesus Christ, he's not a stone, right? But the revelation 
that the Father had gave him of Jesus Christ and the understanding that comes with that and that would come with that, that Peter would receive. Jesus, the truth, is the rock on which we're built. And all the stones are built, as, Jesus, as Peter says later in his letter. You also are stones, did you know? I'm not the only stone. God's building is not a one stone building. There's many stones. And I'm one of them. I'm kind of a prototype. And yes, as the prototype, I had to get rebuked so everyone else would realize it's not enough to just say Jesus is the Christ. We need to understand him. And the church is made up of all who believe in Christ with an understanding. All who are trusting, not in themselves and their righteousness, but are trusting in the Christ to be their righteousness and their salvation before God. The building of the church that Jesus speaks of here is the building of this spiritual infrastructure the stones of which are people. The church is the people of God built up for a purpose, to give God worship, to understand God, to be a place where God dwells. He dwells amongst his people. He's known by his people. He's praised by his people. His people are the temple that he builds. And I want to make this statement that I do not believe, as some Bible teachers believe, that the church began at the time of Jesus. They take this saying uh, to mean when Jesus says, I will build my church, means the church is something that has not even existed yet. The church is something future. Um, what happens to all those Old Testament believers? What happens to David and Abraham? Are they not a part of the church? And some Christians say, Abraham and David aren't a part of the church. The church is something that Jesus is going to do in the future. I don't believe that's true at all. Jesus said in other places, many will come from the east and from the west and take their seat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. All who believe in Christ are the children of Abraham, right? And so the way we should understand this, brothers and sisters, is simply that now, or at that time, or when Christ died and rose again, he would begin to build the church. What that means is he's already been gathering stones. The Old Testament believers are stones. The New Testament believers are stones. And the organization of the people of God is yet to be. But that doesn't mean that the Abraham the stone and Isaac the stone and David the stone are not a part of this beautiful building that Christ will be, will be building and organizing. The other thing we see here is that Satan is opposed to this temple. Satan is opposed to the church. He's opposed to those who understand the gospel. He's opposed to people believing the gospel. He's opposed to the, there being a people that know God and praise God and in whom God dwells. He's opposed to righteousness that comes through faith and not by works. He's not opposed to religion or believing in Jesus. He's opposed to the true understanding of the death of Christ. And yet Jesus gives us the promise, the gates of hell will not win and will not prevail against the church that I build. Pastor J.C. Ryle in the 1800s said this beautiful thing. The meaning of the promise is this, that the power of Satan shall never destroy the people of Christ. He that brought sin and death into the first creation by tempting Eve shall never bring ruin on the new creation by overthrowing believers. The body of Christ shall never perish or decay. Though often persecuted, afflicted, 
distressed and brought low. It shall never come to an end. It shall outlive the wrath of pharaohs and Roman emperors. Visible churches like Ephesus may come to nothing, but the true church never dies. Like the bush that Moses saw, it may burn, but shall not be consumed. Every member of it shall be brought safe to glory, in spite of all falls, failures, and shortcomings, in spite of the world, the flesh, and the devil. No member of the true church shall ever be cast away. And a beautiful promise. If you are a part of the church, then God promises the gates of hell will not prevail. Kind of like we sing it in Christ alone. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Because God has a purpose. It's to build a people. And he needs stones. And he's got stones. And he won't lose one stone. In verse 19, we find the origin of the famous myth that St. Peter will meet us at the pearly gates. Have you ever heard that? When you, get to, when you die and go to heaven, St. Peter at the pearly gates will say, Tim, why should I let you in? <laughs> and why do they think that? Because they say, well, Jesus gives to Peter the keys to the kingdom. So Peter is standing there at the pearly gates swinging the keys. All right, Ross, what is it going to be? <laughs> Am I going to let you in or not? Do you think that's a perversion of this text? Is that what Jesus means? That when you die and stand before God, Peter's going to open the, open the gate for you. By the way, what would you say to Peter <laughs> if you did stand before him? Now, brothers and sisters, the, the uh, interpretation of verse 19 is actually quite simple. Once you realize that binding and loosing was an extremely common phrase in the first century amongst Jews, even beyond the first century, amongst Jewish people, binding and loosing is probably one of the most common phrases they have. The Jewish people love the law, or they love learning about the law. They apparently love the law. And what they mean when they say binding and loosing is the same as what Jesus meant. Binding and loosing means forbidding or permitting. Forbidding or permitting. And the rabbis were the ones who were the authorities of the law. They were the ones who sat in Moses' seat, Jesus said. And they taught the law. And they had the authority to teach the law and they taught the people what the law required. So you have the law of Moses, but then you have to be taught it. And the Pharisees at the time were the ones who taught it. And they said, this is what is permissible according to the law, and this is what is not permissible according to the law. If something was binding upon you, you had to do it or not do it. If something was loosed, you could do it. For example, the rabbis would bind upon you that you couldn't walk a certain distance on a Sabbath, lest that be considered work. The law of Moses says you're not to work on the Sabbath. The rabbis interpreted that to mean walking a certain distance. So they said, if you walk X amount of distances, you've broken the law. They bind that on the people. Of course, another rabbi might say, I loose that. And there was actually a lot of competition. And one house, one school would bind and one school would loose what they bound and vice versa. The Jewish people would call this halakha. 
Halakha is the interpretation of the law. Halakha is the way to walk, the Jewish law. How are you supposed to live your life? And the ones who teach you the law are the halakhic authorities, the ones who have the authority to bind and loose. And here we see Jesus says that the apostles, and he says it to Peter here, but he says it to all the apostles in another place, the apostles are given the authority of Halakha. The apostles are the ones who will teach the people what the law means, what the law requires. They will teach the people what is binding and what is loose. They are now the Halakhic authorities of the new covenant. Jesus delegates that to them. Turn with me to Matthew 23, verse 13. Matthew 23, verse 13. The meaning of, G of Peter and the apostles having the keys is not that when you die and stand before the gates, he'll open them up. It has to do with this life. And in Matthew 23, 13, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who at that time were the halakhic authorities. Because under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, they were the ones who were permitted to teach the people the law. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They have the keys of the kingdom. They are not letting people go in, and they're not going in themselves because of how they teach, because of how they understand the law, because of how they lead the people. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11, verse 53. Luke chapter 11, verse 53. And this is actually the parallel passage of that. Luke 11.53, Jesus says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering, you hindered. And what was the problem? Knowledge. Knowledge is the key. You don't know how to go in. You're not going in, and you don't help others get in because you don't have the key of knowledge. You've taken it away. And when Jesus says, I'm giving to you the keys of the kingdom, he's essentially saying, I'm giving to you the knowledge of how to get into the kingdom, the knowledge of the kingdom, the knowledge of the law. And you will understand, and you will open the door for people to come in. And hopefully, brothers and sisters, you have already come in. You're not going to see Peter after you die. You've now entered the kingdom of God because of the knowledge of Christ and the gospel that you've believed and have been saved by. Amen? And what's interesting, in Matthew 16, verse 19, that if we look at the, the Greek tense, we actually come out with a different translation. And you can check any literal translation of the Bible, and it actually has it. If you're reading the King James or the NIV, you might not have it. But if you look at any literal translation of the Bible, here's what it reads. What you bind on earth shall have been bound already in heaven. What you loose on earth shall have been loosed already in heaven. And, it, and as R.T. France rightly points out, it is not that heaven will ratify Peter's independent decisions, but that Peter will pass on decisions that have already been ratified in heaven. That's the sense. You will know what heaven's thinking, and you will declare it to man. And by this knowledge 
open up the kingdom of God. And what did the apostles preach? We know they had the keys to the kingdom. And now we look at the whole teachings of their lives. And what do we see? The apostles preached Jesus Christ crucified, who by his death loosed us from the demands of all the law and opened the gates of heaven to all who will believe. What must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you, must, and you shall be saved. What do you not need to do to be saved? Keep the commandments. There's another way to be righteous before God through faith. So this is extremely important. Heaven's truth, heaven's declaration, the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, or ignorance that will lead you to hell, life or death, brothers and sisters, life or death is in knowing the gospel. Now in, last, in closing this morning, look with me at Matthew 16, 24 to 27. Jesus sharpens the issue now. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. However, if you are to follow Jesus, if you are to believe in him, here's what you are to expect. You see, Satan hates the true Jesus. The world that is under his control hates the true Jesus. Why? For righteousness' sake. For the true meaning of his death. For the fact that Jesus teaches that no one is good. That everyone is on the way to hell. That the only way to be saved is to believe in him. And the world hates Jesus for this reason. They hated the apostles. They will hate anyone who follows this. They will hate you for believing this. If you want to be loved by the world, don't bring up righteousness through faith. Don't talk about the gospel. Don't tell people they're going to hell. Just talk about Jesus being a good teacher. Don't talk about salvation, that it is free. Because the world will persecute you if you do. Because if Satan cannot fool you with his most dangerous form, he'll come after you with violence and hatred and persecution. And Jesus says here, if you want to believe in me, then you're going to need to take up your cross and follow me. And the Jewish people knew exactly what that meant because they had seen many, many people crucified already. They knew what the cross was. The cross is extreme torment and disgrace, a well-known symbol of suffering and death. And in the light of what Jesus has been saying about himself, having to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, there's no reason that we should think this is figurative. This is literal. I literally am going to be crucified. And if you want to be a follower of me, expect the same treatment. Expect losing your life. Losing your life is a reality. And saving your life is a reality also. Because if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you seek to avoid the persecution that comes through believing, then you better not believe. You will lose your soul, however. And what can you give in exchange for your soul? Jesus takes it for granted that your soul is most valuable, right? One scholar writes, He who is unwilling to assume the hazards involved in being a disciple of Christ will ultimately lose eternal life. Not because dying 
is somehow meritorious or a good deed, but because you will be unwilling to believe in the face of persecution. Christ gives us incentives to believe in 25 to 27. Brothers and sisters, if you save your life, you'll lose it. Some people don't want to believe in Jesus because they think, uh, believe in Jesus in truth because they're afraid they'll lose their families and their friends, right? My, my family and my friends believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that enough? Well, do they understand the grace of God? Do they understand the gospel? No. Well, if, if you believe in the grace of God and the gospel, will they still accept you? No. I don't want to lose my family, though. Jesus says, if you're not willing to lose everything for me, then you ultimately lose eternal life. If you save your life, you'll lose it. What is your highest concern? Holding on to your family for a short time or seeing you and your family perish in hell forever? Jesus, Jesus gives us such a no-brainer situation here, doesn't he? Your spiritual well-being is more important than your physical well-being. What if you gained everything? What if you lived to a nice, ripe age of, a, of 105, and you had all the money in the world because everybody loved you, and your family was all around you when you died, you had everything that the world wanted, and you lost your own soul? Jesus says... He doesn't even answer the question, does he? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It's just a rhetorical question. It's a no-brainer. A.B. Bruce says, for the man who grasps this principle, he may face any experience. Do you grasp this principle? Do you see that your soul is the most important thing? Brothers and sisters, it's a no-brainer. There's a future reckoning with God. The Son of Man will come in the glory with his Father of the Father and his angels. And then he will, in the, in the Greek, give you according to what you've done, whether you've believed or not. It should be a no-brainer. Are you willing to lose it all for the saving of your soul in Jesus Christ? Are you willing to experience the extreme torment and disgrace that Jesus says is the cross? to believe in the truth to the saving of your soul and perhaps even those who hear you. It should be a no-brainer. Better to suffer the torments and disgrace of this world than the torments and disgrace of the world to come. What do you gain for not believing? What do you lose? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Christ? Yes. What does that mean? What's the Christ all about? What was his mission? What does that mean for you? Who are you? Are you a good person? Or are you a sinner in need of the death of Christ, the bloody death? Salvation comes to you through another bearing the wrath of God. Is this Jesus to you? Are you a part of the church? That people who understand the gospel, but that persecuted people. Whose side are you on? Satan's or God's? Satan in his most dangerous form, or God's in his beautiful form? Let's pray. Father, thank you for warning us in your love. 
Help us to see how serious Christianity is. Help us to see how infinitely valuable our soul is and that it's worth losing everything for to save our soul and to be found in you and to know you in truth. Help us not to be deceived by Satan's most dangerous form, that which passes it with good intentions and sincerity and seems to love Jesus but doesn't truly love him. Lord, if there's anyone here who thinks that they are going to be saved because they're sincere or have good intentions or that they think they're good, show them that you are a God of wrath and for that reason you sent your son. You are a God of justice and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Lord, cause your fear to descend upon people in this valley. Help them to fear the judgment. Fear standing before you without being forgiven. Help us to see that fearing you and knowing your wrath does not mean you're a cruel God or a bad God. It truly shows us you're a God of love. Help us to see your love and your wrath at the cross. Lord, help anyone who's not in the kingdom to forsake all and to enter the kingdom right away before it's too late. And Lord, for us who are in, may we rejoice knowing our, our names are written in heaven and that we have eternal life. And may we be fearless in the face of all persecution to proclaim Christ in truth. In Jesus' name and for your glory we pray. Amen.